Second Peter chapter two, verse two. It reads, many will follow their sensuality and because of them, the way of the truth will be maligned. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their judgment from long ago is not idle. Their destruction is not asleep. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to pits of darkness reserved for judgment, and did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a preacher of righteousness, and seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly, and if he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to destruction by reducing them to ashes, having made them an example to those who would live ungodly lives thereafter, And if he rescued righteous lot, oppressed by the sensual conduct of unprincipled men, for by what he saw and heard that righteous man while living among them felt his righteous soul tormented day after day by their lawless deeds, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from temptation and to keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment and especially those who indulge the flesh in its corrupt desires and despise authority. Well, this morning we're blessed once again to hear from uh, James Barbalitos, our pastor of student ministries, and we're glad for his ministry, which he has among the students, among worship and the harvest ministry. So, James, will you come and open a word? Thank you, Pastor Joe. Well, it is indeed a a blessing to bring God's Word to you this morning. And uh, the weeks go in between, and uh, and I do miss it. And then all of a sudden, boom, I'm back up here and and looking at everybody. I can see everybody, by the way, so if you think that you can hide behind, your eyes start to get a little heavy. I know. I can say. Um, but but uh, before we begin, uh, yes, as Pastor Joe mentioned, uh, I am part of the Harvest Ministry, and uh, we do have an event coming up. So while uh, I have the pulpit, I like to at least plug it a little bit. And this year, we are doing what we did last summer, and we were doing uh, a community car wash, where we we pretty much book we booked uh, the Arco in Issaquah, and we just offer completely free, no donations accepted car washes to people in the community, and it is just a great time. We had a great time. Last year, I think we washed well over 20, 25 cars. And it's just a great way to serve the community. Uh, People really cannot understand that we don't want money and we just want to serve them. And you would just be amazed on how how, uh, many ways and and venues this opens up to share the gospel. There's plenty of opportunity to share the gospel with people uh, uh, because we're sitting there washing their cars. And so we we set up some lawn chairs. And if the conversation is going good, I can wink at the students to wash the the hubcaps a little longer or, you know. But it's just a great way to get out. in the the community and serve and and make our presence known to give God glory through our works and also our words. And so if you're interested in that or maybe even interested in in, uh, donating some uh, materials for it, sponges or rags or that kind of thing, please talk to me or Nathan Chang and and we'll get you signed up. It's in in two weeks, uh, Saturday the 26th, and I encourage you, if you can make it, to be there. Uh, It's a fun time. Uh, Now, on a side note, this doesn't mean that everybody can bring their own cars to get washed. Uh, It's mainly for, uh, hopefully, non-believers or people we can reach out into the community. So I encourage you, if you can, please join us and uh, we'll serve the Lord in that way. 
Well, as Pastor Joe uh, read, we this morning we're continuing our study in the book of Second Peter. Uh, some weeks ago, we finally ventured into the second chapter, and we just touched on uh, the first point of a message, and so we're going to continue with that message today. The book of Second Peter, uh, I found it really to be a blessing to study because it's just so rich in practical theology. It's, it's rich in eschatology. The, the, the whole purpose ultimately is meant as, as an encouragement, is written to be an encouragement to the church, to be a warning, but to, to give them strength uh, in light of what God has in the future. The themes in it uh, were certainly relevant to the early church back in Peter's day, but they are certainly just as relevant to us today. They're very relevant, and so we, it is good that we pay attention to them. The recipients of this letter, 2 Peter, uh, were most likely the recipients of Peter's first letter, 1 Peter. And in the beginning of 1 Peter, he writes that, uh, that the letters uh, to the Christians who are dispersed throughout the Roman provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. These, teachers, these churches were all throughout the, the, the Roman Empire, mainly in Asia Minor, which is Turkey today. And for the most part, they were probably a mix of both Gentile and Jew believers. They you know, were a multi-ethnic congregation. They had, came from different backgrounds. They had different cultural differences. Even some of them might have had different language backgrounds. But they were united together through their faith in Christ. And because of that, they are unified in one church body. And so, you know, it is the same uh, with our church today and many other churches that although they had different backgrounds, uh, they faced the same struggles because of their faith in Christ. And during the time of Peter's first uh, letter, he was, he was writing to them and they were enduring a heavy time of persecution. During this time, uh, the, the Roman Empire was ruled under uh, a man named Nero and he was uh, known to feed Christians to the lion or having, uh, feed Christians to the lions and having many of them killed for sport. It was a very difficult time and so in his first letter, he writes to the church to encourage them to endure these persecutions, to encourage them to, to know that they have overcome the world and to be strengthened knowing of their future hope. But then he writes them a second letter. And this letter is not motivated by persecution. It's actually motivated by a a much uh, more dangerous uh, threat than persecution. And that is the coming and influence of false teachers within the church. Indeed, Peter saw the coming and influence of false teachers a much bigger threat than that of of bodily harm or persecution. And so he writes uh, to address that issue in 2 Peter. and, And this is what we have been studying Just by way of review from from the last time, the second chapter begins and and he warns them just of this very thing. He says, be on your guard. Be aware. Be careful. Because there's false teachers coming. And they're going to come and they're going to come into the church and they're going to come secretly. They're not going to wear a false teacher's t-shirts. They're not going to wear t-shirts to say, I'm lying to you, but please believe me. They're going to come in and they're going to come with, uh, with the image of being tellers of the truth and yet they're going to come in and bring in a false doctrine and as Peter writes destructive heresies and because of them and because of their influence many will be exploited many will be led astray and because of them the truth of the gospel will be blasphemed and he doesn't just say this as if it's going to be hypothetical he's saying it's going to happen so make sure you're on your guard so that it doesn't impact you and it doesn't impact your family or your church And so he warns them. And although he paints this bleak picture, he doesn't leave them without reassurance. He gives them assurance that 
In the end, God will prevail. And in due time, according to His will and His timetable, these false teachers and indeed all who reject God, any ungodly, will be judged. And He reminds them and, 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 and proves that this is true because He says, don't forget how God has treated the ungodly in the past. He's dealt with them in the past and He'll deal with them in the future. I was thinking recently, when I was a boy, when I was in sixth grade, and I just happened to be thinking about it, it's this time of year and it's towards the end of the school year. But towards the spring and the end of the year, uh, my sixth grade teacher used to read books to us. In the afternoon, say after recess, it'd be sometime, uh, my sixth grade teacher, her name was uh, Miss Brinton, and who knows, maybe she'll hear this someday and say, wow, James, you, you know. You turned out different. You're not that wild kid that I remember uh, from sixth grade. Um, but she used to read books to us in the afternoon. She'd read a chapter a day, two chapters a day. And, and uh, after a week or two, we'd finish one book and, uh, and go to the next book. And I remember one particular time, I, it, frankly, I, I don't really remember any of the books that she read to us. Um, but I do remember that one of the books particularly was, was kind of intense. It got to a point where the people in the story, they were in some sort of danger and there was peril. And I remember, you know, here I am as a sixth grader and we're sitting and we're listening to this. We can't even look at her read. We're looking at the floor and our hearts are beating like, what's going to happen? You know, and the sixth grade girls are kind of huddled arm in arm and they're wondering what's going to happen. And then all of a sudden the room goes quiet. And it's just like at this climax, we're like, what's going to happen? And, and I look up, and Mrs. Brinson is, has flipped a few pages ahead and is reading ahead on what's going to happen. And then she goes, Phew, and goes back and keeps reading. And we're like, what do you mean? Phew. We're here, like, you know, here we are, these kids, and our eyes are like, what's going to happen? I hope she's okay. I hope, you know. And I just remember, you know, and so we're asking Miss Britton, what are you doing? Oh, so she said, well, sometimes I like to read ahead to make sure things are okay. <laughs> and I, well, okay. Thanks. I, I, does it turn out okay? Or is it, you know, oh, I'm going to cry on my way home from school. You know, it, it's easy to, uh, to get through a difficult circumstance if you know how it pans out in the end. Oftentimes, we can face difficult circumstances if we know the certainty of the ending. Most times, it's, it's the, even though enduring things is hard, it's the uncertainty that's hard, difficult. If you know ahead of time that things are going to be tough, but it's going to turn out okay in the end, and that you're going to persevere and succeed, then things tend to be okay. You're able to push through it because you know that there's hope in the future. And it's that kind of principle that, Paul, that, that Peter rather is writing to us in this book. In a sense, what he's doing is he's letting us flip ahead to the end so that although we know we're going to endure difficult circumstances, although the early church was going to face harsh times, he was giving them a peek at the, at the end and that it's going to be okay and things will turn out all right. And so we continue with our study this morning and as with last time from this passage, I'm going to give you three assurances of spiritual victory that God has given the church. Three assurances of spiritual victory that God has given the church so that you will be encouraged to stand strong and grow in your faith. And that's what Peter wants from the church. He's trying to assure them of the spiritual victory and he wants them to stand strong. Indeed, he wants us, he wants you to stand strong in your faith. Because although you may face hard times, uh, although you may face difficult times, there's victory in the end. 
And this victory is based on the truth that God will deal and judge with false teachers. He will judge the ungodly. He will judge the unrighteous in due time. And we will have victory. He doesn't mention victory here, but that's the whole premise of why he's writing. Is He says, be careful for these false teachers, because there's going to come a time where they're going to infiltrate. And stand strong and last and, 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 and hold out as long as you can. Raise your family up in godliness, because there's going to come a time where they will be dealt with. And you will have to deal with them no more. And so from this then, uh, at the end of of verse 3, he writes, their condemnation, speaking of false teachers, he says, their condemnation from long ago is not idle and their destruction is not asleep. And from this, to prove his point, Peter launches into a series of if statements. There's four of them. And the same word in Greek says if, it could also be translated since. Since God has done this, then we can know this. Since God has done this, we can know that. And I think that translating it since would be good, since all of the examples, as we'll see this morning, uh, relate to actual historical events. They're not hypothetical. It's not, if God happens to do this, then we'll know He will do this. In fact, Peter is reminding us of things that have already happened. Since God has already done this, then we can know for sure that He's going to do the other, that we will persevere. And the first point that we got to last time, some weeks ago, uh, was that the first assurance he gives us is that God has power over all spiritual forces. God has power over all spiritual forces. He begins in verse 4. It says, For, or if since, God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until judgment. He's reminding the church that, you know what, God even has power over all spiritual forces. Demons, Satan, He has power over them all. Everything that they do is not a surprise to Him. In fact, they cannot do anything without Him allowing it. And Peter reminds the church that indeed when they sinned, they were ungodly and so God had the power to punish and bind them and He did. Peter begins here and he, what he's doing is he's, he's, he's creating a type of argument that's called the greater to lesser argument. And a greater to lesser argument was, was a commonly used argument among rabbis of, of, of Peter's day, of Jesus' day. In fact, Jesus uses it in, in the Gospels. Paul uses it frequently in his epistles. In a sense, what it's doing is, is saying if, if somebody, or in this particular, if God, if God can do something like this, then certainly he can do something like this. You know, if a man can lift a boulder, then certainly he can lift a baseball. And so that's what, what Peter is saying. He, he begins and he says, if God can punish sinful angels who are much mightier and smarter and more powerful than, than men, then certainly God can punish sinful men. And if God can prevent uh, fallen or sinful angels from completely corrupting the world as he did in the days of Noah, then certainly he can prevent sinful men from completely corrupting the church. And so he's building his point along these lines. That we can trust God. He's done great things, and so if he can do these big things, then certainly we know he can do the smaller things. Now, sometimes the smaller things seem very big to us, but to God they are not. And so the first assurance that Peter gave us is that God has power over all spiritual forces. And then continuing on this morning, the second assurance of spiritual victory is that we know that God will punish the ungodly. God will punish the ungodly. This is not a fancy assurance. It's not like, wow, James, I didn't really know God is going to punish the ungodly. It's something that we've heard all along that we know. 
And Peter is not giving them any new information. In fact, as we'll go through, he's just reminding them about what God has already did. But oftentimes we need to be reminded about things constantly to apply them to our lives. See, Peter now moves from the spiritual world to the physical world. And it's good that he addressed the idea of, of condemning and punishing demons. But let's face it, I mean, we, most of us on a day-to-day basis don't encounter the wickedness of demons. At least not that we know of, right? You know, if we watch TV and we see wickedness happening, wickedness happening all over the world, uh, we don't usually say, man, those demons are at it again. Right? We usually are thinking, oh man, Lord, how long? Look, the wickedness of man... It's just apparent throughout. You watch the news. Or even, most of the time, if we're oppressed by people, it's not demons. It's, it's ungodly men. It's ungodly women. And so Peter says it doesn't just stop with demons. It, it, it goes on to men or women as well. God will judge them the same. Godly men and women impact us personally all the time. And so Peter, just like in the early churches, is dealing with them. And this would have been relevant to them. I mean, if you think, especially the early church, man, they were were being persecuted, they were hated, they were beaten because of their faith. Ungodly men who rejected Christ were persecuting them all the time. Have you ever been abused or mistreated by somebody, an ungodly person, uh, for for your faith or maybe even just in general? And then that person gets away with it? Like nothing ever happens to them, there's no justice, they just mistreat you and get away and, and you can't do anything about it. How, does, how did you feel when that happens? It's frustrating. It's frustrating. You cry out to God, little Lord, I, why are you allowing this? And in fact, unfortunately, situations like this can be a cause of great bitterness and anger in one's life. But as Christians, we can't let it. Don't let it. Because we know that God will bring justice someday, sometime soon. Consider the works of the false teacher. They were perverting the truth within the church. They took advantage of the helpless. They carried away many innocent people out of their greed and selfishness. They exploited them and took advantage of them. We hear that and we just, you know, especially our American spirit that just wants to rise up against the man. We're like, we've got to stop him. But it's not our job. Our job is to remain faithful to the Word of God. And by doing that, that's how we stop them. And God does it through us. But Peter assures them. He says, even if things happen to you and and you never see the result of it, that in the future God will bring judgment. And he does so by reminding them on how he has dealt with the ungodly in the past. And he continues on and he gives two examples. He gives two examples uh, of his proof. And, And it's namely the ancient world during the days of Noah and Sodom and Gomorrah during the days of Lot. And we'll look at both of those today. So Peter continues on and and he starts in verse 5. Moving from angels, he moves now to ungodly men and says, If or since he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness, with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. So he begins with Noah and he reminds them of the story of Noah. And to, to better understand what's going on here, I invite you to flip to Genesis 6, which is where the account of this is. Very little is known about the ancient world before and, and, and during and before the days of Noah. 
If you follow the genealogies found in the book of Genesis, we can, we can guess that it's been at least 1,600 years from creation to the days of Noah. And that's a pretty substantial amount of time. And the people were living longer then as well. But interestingly, uh, there's been many estimates about how many people were there on the earth during those days. And Dr. Henry Morris, uh, an expert in the book of Genesis and essentially the, uh, the, the father of modern day creation science, estimates that there were anywhere between 5 and 11 billion people on the earth during the days of Noah. I think oftentimes we, we read that and we just kind of think about the, how, how the world was, but we forget that you know, there's, there's a large possibility that the earth had the same population then as it does now. And knowing how societies and, 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 and human tendencies work, it was probably, they probably had formed nations. There was probably mighty nations and empires. There was probably marvelous cities. And with that many, many people over 1,600 years, they probably had uh, more advanced technology than at least we give them credit for. Typically, you think back then, oh, they were living in caves and, and fought with stones and things. We don't know what kind of technology they had, but they, they, they weren't just... Uh, you know, uh, cavemen. But Scripture doesn't tell us much about uh, exactly how they were, and so a lot of this is just surmising that that's not authoritative, but it's, it's a fair guess. But Scripture does tell us one thing, that apart from their population and their military strength, whatever they were, they were violent, and it was a wicked, wicked place. So, beginning in Genesis Chapter 6, starting in verse 5, the author writes this. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, Man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. And then popping back down to verse 11. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end to all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth, or I will destroy them along with the earth. So here Genesis reveals that that the earth was a wicked and violent and horrible place. Their thoughts, the intentions of man were evil continuously. It gives the idea of non-stop. They didn't just take a break. It was evil, wicked, non-stop. Their thoughts, their actions, their deeds... And this wickedness went on for many years before the judgment. If you live there, if you were part of no, we might be tempted to say, how long, O Lord, are you going to allow this? And yet year after year continues on. How long, O Lord, are you going to allow this? Well, finally the judgment does come and, and, and the, the Lord destroys all living things apart from that which was on the ark. Two of the head of each kind of animal and, and Noah and his family. And the destruction was vast. And we don't know a lot about the ancient world because there's no remnants left. The Lord blotted them out. He didn't want us to remember what they were like. And keep in mind, you know, the Lord was not waiting 
the Lord was not waiting for them, their wickedness, hoping that someday they would turn from their wickedness and, and, and believe in Him. He knew they wouldn't. He knows the future. But He waited until His specific time, when it was right according to His divine will, that's when He started the judgment and that's when He enacted the flood. And the same is true today. And that's what Peter's point is. He says, Church, you need to be aware that there is a day that the Lord has appointed and He will judge the earth. We may not know it. We may not see it. We don't know when it is, but it will happen. And we know it because He's done it in the past. And He let a wicked generation go on for who knows how long, but finally He said enough is enough and according to His divine will, that's when He did it. It's always according to God's will and what is for His most glory and and not what we think is best for us. Now, some of you might be thinking, okay, James, um, are we going to have to wait for the entire earth uh, until eight people, until the Lord comes? Are we going to have to wait until it gets so bad that we we can't stand to live here anymore? Is that how long the Lord is going to take? Is that that when it's going to occur? Well, we don't know, but not necessarily. And we know this because he continues on through his next example, which is Lot. So, flipping back to 2 Peter... The flood story is, is one that we've all known, but it's, it's so, it seems to be so long ago and so catastrophic that it's hard for us to apply practically. But Peter understands this, and so he continues on. And again, think of the greater to the lesser. He's, he's thinking, first he does spiritual forces and angels, and then he, he moves to uh, the worldwide flood. And then now he's moving into something smaller, and he's going to speak about Sodom and Gomorrah. So he continues on in verse 6. At the very end, uh, at the very end of verse 5, he says, uh, Noah, herald of righteousness, with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. Then verse 6, For by or since turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. And so Peter reminds the early church, and he reminds us, don't forget what he did about the ancient world of Noah, but also don't forget about how he reacted to Sodom and Gomorrah during the days of Lot. The cities were given into sexual lusts and perversion and homosexuality, along with pride and many other things. And so the Lord reminds us that, uh, Peter reminds us that the Lord obliterated them. Fire and brimstone came down from the sky and completely uh, destroyed the city. Now they were left to uh, be in ash. And now they are extinct. And if you go to the area where Sodom and Gomorrah uh, was supposed to be today, all it is is it's a wasteland. It's, it's, it's near the Dead Sea. It's just dead stuff. Sulfur and salt and hills and dirt. There's nothing there. And just like the ancient world, which has no remnants, so now really Sodom and Gomorrah has no real remnants. Now, some of you might say, okay, well, Pastor James, I understand it. Sodom and Gomorrah was a wicked place, and I can see how it could deserve God's judgment. But I don't live in Sodom. I live in Sammamish. Right? My, my, my city is not exactly Sodom. I, well, you know, it's not perfect, but you know, the neighbors are nice, usually. Is God really going to judge my city, Sammamish, the same way that He, he judged Sodom? And if so, why hasn't God judged even more wicked cultures than Sodom and Gomorrah? And and history tells us that there were certainly worse cities and worse cultures than Sodom and Gomorrah. Why hasn't God judged them then if He's going to do it? 
You know, and that's a very fair question. And it's a question that non-believers pose to believers all of the time. But there is a clear and simple answer to it. And, and to kind of help us give insight, uh, I encourage you to flip to Matthew chapter 11. In this context, Jesus is speaking about the various cities that he had ministered to and taught in. And then in Matthew, 7, in Matthew 11, he addresses a, a city named Capernaum. So in Matthew 11, beginning in verse 23, Jesus says this, And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. This is a striking statement that Jesus says. Worse in Capernaum than Sodom? I mean, when you think about Sodom and Gomorrah, it's like one of the most kind of horrifying judgment stories in, in the Old Testament. Yet here, Jesus is saying it's going to be worse for Capernaum than Sodom. I've actually traveled to Capernaum. Seems to be a nice place. It's not exactly Las Vegas. Right? So why is the Lord going to judge them worse than Sodom? Jesus was speaking of, of spiritual judgment. You see, Capernaum, all they are, all it is, it was in Jesus' day, is the same as today. It was just a small fishing village on the northern side of the Sea of Galilee. It's relative like then, and now it's relatively inconsequential as far as the world is concerned. They were not known for any specific immorality or gross sin, probably much like the city of Sammamish. And yet the Lord says, Woe to you, because it's going to be worse for you in Sodom, worse for you, Capernaum, than it was in Sodom. And Jesus is speaking of spiritual judgment here. And Peter is reminding us that there is two types of judgment in a sense. There's physical judgment, which is physical death, but there's also a worse judgment, which is spiritual death. You see, for us in the church, we may not always see God punishing with physical death the ungodly, but we can rest assured that He will judge them after death. But sometimes He does judge them physically, and we saw that with the flood, and we see that with Sodom and Gomorrah. And we just rest and trust in His time to know what is best and when to do what. Things were going to be worse in Capernaum because they had heard the teachings of the Son of God Himself. They had seen Him do miracles. They had seen Him um, preach and heard His words, and yet they still rejected Him. Sodom and Gomorrah didn't see the Messiah. Sodom and Gomorrah didn't even have Scripture. And yet God carried out His furious wrath on them because of their sin. And He, he made them extinct. And why did He do this? Well, Peter explains, flipping back to, to Second Peter. He, he did this to Sodom and Gomorrah to make them an example of what was going to happen to all ungodly. Verse 6 at the end, he says, By turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. So if God is going to pour out that kind of wrath on people that haven't seen the Messiah and don't even have Scripture, 
how much more wrath is going to be poured out on those who infiltrate the church, who have heard the truth, who know the truth, who sit there Sunday after Sunday refusing to repent, not giving their life to Christ, or even perverting the church, trying to bring many people astray, exploiting them, stealing from them. How much more is God going to punish them? And that's what Peter's point is. We can know that he's going to do it because he did it to Sodom and Gomorrah that didn't even really know him. How much more is he going to hold into account those who are purposely trying to corrupt the church? Or those who continuously hear the truth week after week yet reject him? You may not see it in your life. As I mentioned, the early church didn't see it. What did they see? They saw uh, persecution. They saw prisons. Many of them saw death. But Peter reminds him that the judgment that's coming is real. It's actual. Sodom and Gomorrah, the people there, they knew it was real. The ancient world, they knew it was real as well. He's done it before and he'll do it again and we can trust in that church. Be assured in it. But Peter also reassures us in another way. Through this writing, through these passages, he also reminds us That God is not only proactive in judgment, He's also proactive in protection. Just as He is proactive in the judgment of the ungodly, so He'll be proactive in the, the rescue and preservation of the righteous. And that's the third point, is that the third assurance that Peter gives is that God will preserve the righteous. God will preserve the righteous. Continuing on, after he, after he made Sodom and Gomorrah an example of what was going to happen to the ungodly, he continues and he says, If he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for as the righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials. God is not an impersonal God just watching from a distance. And then when he sees it get so evil, he steps in and says, okay, break it up and just obliterates everything. But it's easy to think that when we're enduring difficult times that God is not near us when indeed he's very near us. He's very near you. Do not forget that the same wrath that God has towards sin, he has love towards you. God loves you as much as he hates sin. That makes sense. That same passion towards his love for you is carried out in the same type of fury that he has wrath towards sin. And he demonstrated that by sending his own son to die for us. God will preserve the righteous. And and who are the righteous? The righteous is anyone who has repented of their sins and has trusted in Christ as their Savior. We're not righteous by our own works, but through our faith in Christ we've been given his righteousness. And so the Lord counts us as righteous. Those were the righteous of Peter's day, and, and that is the righteous, those are the righteous today. And in verse 9, it says that, that God knows how to, to rescue the, the godly from trials, or some versions say temptations, and the Greek word can mean either or. But I think that in, in, this, in this context, Peter is referring to trials. Because the two examples that he just gave of, uh, of Noah and Lot, they weren't dealing with temptations. They were dealing with the trial of having to live among ungodly men all the time. And that was a difficult trial for them. And so Peter says, just like he knows how to rescue those men from trials, so he knows how to rescue you from trials. 
Now some might say, well, what do you mean, James? I don't understand. Peter says God knows how to rescue us from trials, but uh, I'm still struggling with trials. I still endure trials. What does that mean? What is Peter getting at? Well, Peter certainly doesn't mean that he will rescue you from all the trials that you experience. In fact, this whole passage seems to indicate quite the opposite. This whole passage seems to indicate that the Lord often allows His followers to endure very difficult circumstances and very difficult times. And what do I mean? Well, okay, let's consider the two people we've talked about. Let's go back to Noah. In verse 5, it says, He didn't spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, who was a, a herald of righteousness, or a preacher of righteousness. The world herald, a preacher, it, 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 it gave the idea of somebody who would give public proclamations, say like for a king, like if the country was going to go to war, or they were announcing some sort of new edict, uh, a herald would come out and, and openly announce the message from the king. And this is how Peter portrays Noah. As someone who came out and while he was enduring, while God uh, gave him the message, he was openly, publicly proclaiming to the people around him to repent of their sin and warning them of the destruction that was going to come if they didn't turn. But Noah certainly didn't have it easy. I mean, think about it. Consider that everyone around him besides his family, and as the story kind of pans out, his family wasn't necessarily that great either. But everyone around him, their thoughts were continuously wicked all of the time. And so when the Lord announced the judgment, he didn't just take Noah and his family out right away. No, what did he have them do? He said, build an ark. Right? And who knows how long it took him to build that ark. He, he probably would have taken another years, years of enduring the wickedness around him while he built the ark. And probably building the ark would have just added to the ridicule of, of crazy Noah, this herald of righteousness. And now he's building a boat? What is this guy doing? Noah and his family had it difficult. Yet in the end, despite the difficult circumstances, the Lord rescued him. And Peter reflects something similar from Lot. And consider Lot's life. Verse 7, again, says that the Lord rescued righteous Lot who was greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked. For as the righteous man lived among them, day after day he was tormenting his righteous soul over the lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Have you ever been surrounded by constant sin, wicked sin? And you can't do much to get out of it. And it's just around you. You just kind of feel like, ah, it's tough. You just want to bail. You just want to leave. Right? If you're in a situation maybe with some friends or coworkers who are doing sinful things, especially as a Christian who loves the Lord, it convicts you. You just don't want to be around there. Consider righteous Lot. And interestingly, Peter calls him righteous three times in one verse. He was dealing with the, the wickedness of Sodom and Gomorrah all of the time. And the idea that you know, once the Lord decided to judge, who knows how long Lot lived there. It just said that with everything that he saw and heard, his soul was tormented day after day after day. That's not a short time. That's certainly, we're not seeing God saving him from the trials he was experiencing. Finally, the, this, the, the town folk of Sodom attacked Lot and his family with the angels staying with them. And so the Lord, by His grace, rescued them and then destroyed the city. See, the Lord knows how to rescue, but He also knows how to allow you to endure 
for His purposes and for your own spiritual growth. In the end, it's always about His glory and what He's going to work through you and what you can do for His glory, not just about our circumstance. But Peter doesn't leave us without hope. So what is this trial that, the, the, what is this trial that Peter's speaking of? What does he mean? Well, I think from the context, what, what, what Peter is speaking of is that the Lord knows how to save the church from the trial of when the, when, when the Lord comes back again to judge the wicked, He knows how to save us. Just like He knew how to save Noah when it was time for judgment, just like He knew how to save Lot when it was time for judgment, so He knows how to save you and the church when the time for judgment comes. Because many of these false teachers had infiltrated into the church. And so as Peter is talking about this, this, this wrath to come, people were like, God's wrath is terrifying. And, and, and many of these wicked people are within the church. What if God comes and judge? What's going to happen to us? And Peter reassures them and says, don't worry. God knew how to rescue Noah. God knew how to rescue Lot before judgment came. God knows how to rescue you. You see, the trial that that Peter is speaking of is is not the trial of the attack of ungodly men on you personally. The trial that he's speaking of is God's attack on the ungodly. And he will remove and save you before that occurs. And and, and in Peter's understanding, he he looked to this event as the the second coming of Christ. And and, and he speaks a lot more of this in chapter 3, and so we'll spend some more time talking about the coming judgment of the the world and the second coming of Christ when we get to chapter 3. But all this was going to point that there is coming a day when the Lord is coming back, and He's going to bring justice and judgment with Him. But when He comes back, don't think that you're not going to be counted. Don't think that you're going to accidentally be obliterated and He's not going to notice. He knows how to rescue you. He knows how to rescue the godly, and He knows how to punish the righteous, and He will do so. And he has reason to believe it because God has demonstrated in the past. Some people will say, well, Lord, why haven't you coming? Look how much wickedness is left in the world. But we must remember that our ways are not his ways and and our thoughts are not his thoughts. And again, as we'll get into in chapter 3, the Lord is waiting patiently actually for your sake. The sake of the church. He's refraining from coming back because there are still people who are there who have yet to come to know Him, but that the Lord knows will. There are still people who are going to be saved. And so, for the love of the church and for the love of His body and for His glory, He refrains until the appointed day. But rest assured that day will come and there will be justice. And we will have no more trials and we will be rescued. And, and as He says in chapter 1, uh, we'll enter into the eternal kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. What a wonderful day that will be. So we conclude this section of, of, of God's promises to us, knowing that he, he knows how to rescue us, but He also knows how to punish the ungodly. And so what do you take from this? What do we take from this? What does this all mean to us? Well, let me just give you a, a three short practical applications as we close. Um, so you might look at this practically, other than the hope of knowing that God is sovereign and that, and that God will judge the ungodly and that He will preserve us. And the first, the first thing I'd like you to take away is, is remember God's promises and His works. You see, that's all that Peter was doing this whole time, was just reminding them about what God has already done. He's saying, don't be despair. There's false teachers that are going to come, but remember what God did with Noah and remember what God did with Lot. It is good for you as a church, for you as a Christian, to, to look to Scripture and remember the things that God has done. 
Remember the, very, the, the precious and very great promises that He has given to you. And consider God's character throughout Scripture. And remember His love for you. Remember His promises to, to make a way of escape through any temptation. Consider His love and faithfulness and the forgiveness of your sin. And let that encourage you during this time while we, like they did in Peter's day, continue to wait for the Lord's coming. Remember God's promises and you will grow. The second is this. Refrain from being pessimistic. Refrain from being pessimistic. And you know what? Even as Christians, that is so easy for us to do. We see the wickedness around us. We see uh, the struggles that we go through. Sometimes we might not see growth in our life or we're oppressed by people or just discouraged. It's so easy to get pessimistic, but don't. Don't get pessimistic and don't try to force God's justice. God is a much better judge than you are. God's timetable is much better than yours. He knows things you don't. He has plans that you don't. Don't let your circumstances dictate your walk. Let your obedience and love for God dictate your walk. And as you do it, you shine as, as, as bright lights in a dark, dark world. And don't be pessimistic. Remember that if you're a Christian, your future is glorious. It's hard to comprehend, but it is glorious. We have a great hope and joy. And finally, number three is resolve to live a godly life with as much effort as you can. Remember God's promises. Refrain from being pessimistic and resolve to live a godly life. Honor Him in your family. Honor Him in your life. Read God's Word and stick to it. When you do this, you protect yourself from being influenced by false teachers. You protect the church from being influenced and carried away by false teachers. And you heed Peter's warning. But not only this, you prepare yourself for eternity. Because whether you want to believe it, heaven is a real place. There are people there at this very minute. Is real is, is we are here. And so is hell. And that judgment is coming. And so as you strive to live a, a godly life, remember that you're preparing yourself for eternity. And as you do it, you serve as a warning to the world that there is a God and He cares about right and wrong. And His standard is holy. And you need to repent and turn to Him for forgiveness. Remember these things as you seek to grow in your faith and be rest assured that we have spiritual victory through the coming of the Lord and through His very great promises that He's given to each one of us. Let's pray. Father, we give thanks, Lord, um, for Your grace towards us. Lord, we know we are, um, we are sinners. We, uh, it is easy for us to despair. It is easy for us to, to wonder how long You can be patient with this sinful world. Lord, but we remember how patient You were with us when we were sinners. And how you did not, how you refrained from destroying us, but, but, but brought us into the kingdom of your Son. And so in that we rejoice, Lord. I pray for our church that we would seek to be people who would shine as bright lights in the dark world, Lord. That they would see a difference in us, Lord, and, and, and want to know this hope that we have, Lord. We thank you for being a God of justice and for, knowing, for, for giving us the hope that we know you will judge the ungodly. And all things will be made right in the end, Father. We ask, Lord, that you would give us strength to be obedient followers of you in our families, in our church, in our daily walk, Lord. That we be a testimony to you in all that we do. In Jesus' name, amen.